Hello and welcome to Backlisted, the podcast that gives new life to old books. Today you find us in the floral hall in the Yorkshire seaside town of Kiplington in the South Riding. It's a warm August evening in 1932 and we're here for a grand gala evening organised by the redoubtable Madame Hubbard. The Kiplington Memorial Subscription Band have just finished their classical overture. The stage is suddenly filled with 50 young women, their faces painted, their hair waved or frizzed or corkscrewed into ringlets. They're about to launch into the Song of Welcome. I'm John Mitchinson, the publisher of Unbound, the platform where readers crowdfund the books they really want to read. Sorry, <laughs> just <laughs> such a brilliant introduction. Kick, kick high, ladies, kick high. I've been practising Lily of Laguna. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm Andy Miller, author of The Year of Reading Dangerously, and we're joined today by two guests, one new and one returning. Tanya Kirk and Una McCormack. Hello. 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 Our new guest is Tanya Kirk. Tanya is the lead curator of Printed Heritage Collections 1601 to 1900 at the British Library. A specialist in literary collections, she's co-curated six major exhibitions, including ones on science fiction, Gothic literature, Shakespeare and the British landscape in literature. She's also edited four collections of classic ghost stories taken from books and periodicals in the British Library for the series Tales of the Weird, the most recent of which is Sunless Solstice, Strange Christmas Tales for the Longest Nights. Tanya, I reckon your job is one that loads of our listeners would at least <laughs> like to have a two-week uh, uh, turn at. What is the rarest or most valuable book that you have held in your two hands? It's probably the the first quarter of Hamlet, which there's, so there's only two copies in the world. It's a text that is disputed Possibly it's like done from memory from one of the players who performed in it. Yeah, so there's only only two and we've got the only copy that has the last page. Wow. <laughs> That's a good answer. Yes, I will accept it. Um, what, what, I've got a question though. When you read books at home then, I'm assuming that there's two strands of thought as regards books. Should yeah. you treat them well? because yeah. they are important objects, or should you show your love by breaking their spines, turning the corners, <laughs> scribbling on them, and generally vandalising them? You can't, I wonder if you can guess which school I subscribe to. <laughs> it's the former. So when, but when you're, Now, you can't do that to one of the only existing <laughs> copies of Hamlet, presumably. No. I don't know what goes on at the BL. But <laughs> at home, do, are you respectful of books, or are you a vandal? I'm very respectful of books, although... Some, sometimes if there's a mistake in them, I do correct it in pencil. <laughs> <laughs> I love it when I get people who do that. I love that. People do that in London library copies, I've noticed. They like to let you know that they were there 40 years ago. Tutting. <laughs> Would you, could you countenance Alex Christoffi, former guest, um, wonderful biographer of Dostoevsky, caused absolute mayhem on Twitter when he confessed that he'd take a, a paperback on holiday and he'd rip out once he'd finished reading, he'd rip it out and bin the rest. Um, McCormack, I've, take... I've done that. I haven't binned it. I haven't binned it. I was going on a, a long-haul flight and I'd been reading uh, The Golden Notebook, which is quite a, a hefty... Doris Lessing. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And I only had about 50 pages left to go. So In my defence, it was a really, really cheap paperback edition. It was practically broken anyway. So I cut it down the spine. <sighs> Yeah. <laughs> and I left the big bit at home. My stomach has lurched. 
I'm in pain. I'd got it for two dollars or something in a in a book sale. Somewhere. Did you sellotape it back afterwards? Uh, no, I think it's I think it's just on the shelf in two bits. <laughs> the thing is, though, right? I know there's no right or wrong way to do this, but I can't stand that thing that you see people saying, "Oh, books deserve to be loved." No. Oh, they've been oh they've been scrunched up, and I stuck them down the lab. <laughs> And uh, I showed how much I loved them by bashing them with a hammer and to prove that I'd read them, right? It's absolutely nonsense. How do you not break the spine he, of a really big book? He doesn't read the middle of the book. It's like the uh, the last third. Yeah, reading really carefully. I really is... struggle with paperbacks because of because it is so hard to not break the spine. So I do mainly buy hardbacks. <laughs> That's a good digression. Oh, it's going to be a long episode. Right. And uh, thank you very much, Tanya. And uh, the returning guest, as uh, regular listeners will have already recognised, the, the book slayer, the voice of the book slayer herself, Storm Una McCormack, making her sixth appearance Whoa. on that list. Is really? That amazing. many? Having previously joined us for episodes dedicated to Boo, Anita Bruckner, Georgia Heyer, Russell Hoban, J.R.R. Tolkien, Terence Dix, and William Golding. That's her seventh appearance, John. You can't yeah. count. One, two, three, four, five, six. This is her seventh appearance. Christ. And later on, I'm going to get a copy of a book by each one of those, and I'm going to cut it down the spine. <laughs> <laughs> that is an eclectic mix. That's what we call range, Una. That's what we call range. You were on the Doctor Who episode, I was, you? yeah, yeah. That was, was that Terrence on the list? Yeah, Terence Sticks. Oh, Terence Sticks. Yeah. Sorry. Sorry. Doctor Who isn't an author, Tanya. I hate <laughs> Seven, to say Oh. Or is she? <laughs> Ooh. I love it. If you like that kind of chippy feminism, keep listening to this episode. <laughs> Una is a new... That's chippy feminism in inverted chippy commas. Feminism. Before you write and complain at me. Una is a New York Times bestselling writer of TV tie-in novels, most recently the autobiography of Mr. Spock. Yay. Let's have a round Very good. Very that. good. Oh, that was fun. That's, that's Mr. Spock from Star Trek, everybody. Uh, a former <laughs> university lecturer in creative writing, she continues to mentor writers and is on the editorial board for Gold SF, an imprint of Goldsmiths Press, publishing feminist science fiction. We're so pleased to have you both here. Thank you for having me back. Yeah. The book we're here to discuss is South Riding by Winifred Holtby, the classic Yorkshire novel, described by some as the great novel of local government. But don't let that put you <laughs> off. It has many strings to its fictional bow, not least the fact that it was first published by William Collins in 1936, five months after Winifred Holtby had died from Bright's disease at the age of 37. So South Riding has been in print ever since and has been adapted several times for film, radio and television, perhaps most memorably by Stan Barstow in 1974 for Yorkshire Television. But more of that later. Before we brave the sea frets and the subcommittee minutes, I must ask the old question, Andy, what have you been reading this week? Thank you, John. Uh, I've been reading a book by Tracy Thorne called My Rock and Roll Friend, uh, which is about Lindy Morrison. Now, I've read all of Tracy Thorne's books, her first bedsit disco queen, then Naked at the Albert Hall, then Another Planet, which is her book about suburbia, and now this one, My Rock and Roll Friend. And this is my favourite of her books, and I think is probably her best book to date. Um, 
if listeners don't know who Lindy Morrison is or Tracy Thorne, um, Tracy Thorne is a singer and songwriter who for many years has been a member of Everything But The Girl. And Lindy Morrison is an artist and musician who was for many years the drummer in the original lineup of the Australian band, The Go-Betweens. Tracy's book about her friendship with Lindy goes back to the 1980s. They met backstage, I think I'm right in saying, at a gig. And really it's a book about the ways in which rock and roll is perceived as a boy thing. And um, despite my lifelong battle not to be seen as a bloke, I read this book and thought, hmm, I am guilty of some of the behaviours within this. Um, and even at the age, yes, Nikki's nodding, you are, Andy. Uh, it, even at the age of like 53, I thought you can always get, you can always do better, right? But I don't really like the go-betweens. So it might be easier for me than it might be for some of our listeners to take this book on its own terms, because one of the things it does is it talks about Robert Forster and Grant McLennan, and, uh, who were the songwriters in The Go-Betweens, but it tries to recontextualise them, not as the leaders of the group, but of two of the members of the group, trying to say the Go-Betweens would not have been the Go-Betweens without the chemistry, influence, musical contributions of Lindy Morrison. But it's in the nature of how we talk about rock and roll or many art forms to marginalise not just women, but also drummers. This is a very pro-drummer book. So really, Tracy's book is a, is a, a, a sort of very witty, readable, polite, corrective it's telling the story of a group that you think you might know about and the role of a woman within a group that you think you might understand in a different way. And I found it incredibly thought-provoking. Also, I've got to say, in the chapter Good Girl, Tracy quotes from the following authors in this order. Claire Deidre, Deborah Levy, Ricky Lee Jones, Simone de Beauvoir, <laughs> Agnes Varda, Anita Bruckner and Kim Adonizio. Right, so she <laughs> she's very much in the uh, in the Andy Miller zone of interest there. So thank you very much, Tracy Thorne. So I'm just going to read the opening uh, bit of this book, uh, the, and the opening, uh, the main chapter, the first chapter is called Boys Games. Sydney, 1988. A woman is in a TV studio being interviewed. She's being interviewed because she's the drummer in a rock and roll band. Beside her sits one of the band's songwriters who used to be her boyfriend. He's wearing a necklace and lipstick. The interviewer is a geeky-looking guy in glasses with tinted hair. The woman is a blonde in a T-shirt, sitting with her legs apart, a short skirt pulled up between her thighs. The interviewer wants to talk about sexism, and so most of the questions are to the woman, because sexism is a problem for women to explain and define and answer for. We know this. Now, Lindy... Is there any difference, do you think, between men and women's ability to express emotion? She starts to answer. Her face is serious, polite. Then she smiles. Yes, there's an enormous difference. I think that women can express emotion by being hysterical. And, and the thing that's said to me most often within the band, she looks up, thinking hard, leg jiggling slightly, then looks to the songwriter, 
is to stop being emotional, stop being angry, stop expressing it. Because I think we're encouraged as youngsters to cry, and I don't think boys are allowed to, and I think there's a secret language men have, which is why you're all so much in power. She pulls back, takes hold of her hair and scrapes it into a ponytail, looking down and grinning widely. She seems placatory, but then suddenly her tone changes, becoming faintly angry. Turning again to the songwriter, she says to him in a louder, harsher voice, Robbie, are you going to let me talk or are you going to play this game with him? Camera pulls back, so now the songwriter is in shot too and she is gesturing between him and the interviewer. Are you going to play this boy's game? She slaps her legs. OK, let's not be serious. Let's play boy's games. Now, no, no, the interviewer interjects, but it's too late. She's reaching beneath her chair for something and she pulls out a water pistol and her voice is rising now. My God, I'm brilliant at boys' games. She squirts the interviewer, has a hand up to protect himself and turns absolutely brilliant. And she squirts the songwriter, who also has a hand up. All three of them are smiling, but something has been unleashed very, very quickly. The atmosphere is electric and alert. All eyes on the woman and what she might do next. The audience applauds. Cut. Uh, that's my rock and roll friend, so called because Tracy proves that her friend can be rock and roll and more scary and more dangerous and more unsettling than anyone else in that book. So that's published <laughs> by Canongate and it's out at the moment and it's brilliant. John, what have you been reading this week? Well, as promised, I am <coughs> ready now to talk about uh, the Books of Jacob by <laughs> Olga Togarczyk. We've been building up. Go on. Uh, well, it's a it's a 900-page novel of genius. It does sort of live up to its billing. It's the book that won her the Nobel Prize for Literature. Is it is it where I would start with Olga Togarczyk? No, <laughs> I wouldn't. I'd start right. with Flights or Drive Your Plough Over the Bones of the Dead. Yeah, yeah. So this is a historical novel set in uh, in... Uh, in 1750s uh, Poland, which essentially might as well be medieval Poland, because one of the great movements in this book is from a kind of medieval worldview to a, uh, a kind of enlightenment worldview. And the the story is about a real person called Jacob Frank, who was but uh, believed himself to be the uh, the second coming. He was Jewish, believed himself to be the second coming, the Messiah, and started a cult. And so it's a book about belief and about, uh, but it's also a book about science. Um, one of the other main characters is a, is a brilliant bibliophile called Father Chimlowski, who was a real person and wrote a book that she that uh, Olga Togarczyk has written about before called The New Athens, which is a kind of and f Poland's first encyclopedia, an attempt to bring all the knowledge about the world into one place and to put it into a book. So what is the book about? It's about it's about everything. It's about the biggest possible <laughs> questions. It's about belief. It's about God. It's okay. about science. It's about... Yeah. So what is it not like? It isn't like Tolstoy. It's a bit like mm. Dostoevsky in that mm -hmm. the, the, there are lots. There are hundreds of characters in the book. She follows them all through. So you've got this... You have this extraordinary unbelievably rich reconstruction of 18th century middle European life 
And it's obviously also about Jews assimilating, becoming part of uh, the, the, the European mainstream. There are pogroms; people are people are killed and tortured. But there is there is that idea of ideas transforming themselves, becoming part of a, a new reality. Was my attention kept all the way through the nine hundred pages? Of course, it wasn't. <laughs> there were times when I was, you know, like anybody, I was, I was. Where my attention drifted, but was it worth the final the final hundred pages are worth a worth the effort? It's like all of these books. If I'd stopped, I know quite a lot of people who've stopped reading this book, and I would say you kind of don't get it until you get to the end. The ending, yeah. the ending is magnificent, Finish and she books. absolutely delivers Finish on what books. she sets up. And I'm going to read you a time, just a really little bit. So there's a. The whole point about it starts in Rohatten, which is in rural Poland. It's in a in a tiny little town where there are, uh, there's a big Jewish community, and it ends up in the grand avenues of Vienna. Um, uh, and there's not a lot of drama in that sense in the book. The drama, in insofar as it is, is is the man a charlatan or not? And uh, uh, Jacob Frank kind of comes out of it as a, as as a, a yeah a charlatan. I mean, strangely, he, one of his particular party tricks is to is to get young women to to suckle him. So he um, he 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 takes on. So there's a lot of weird sexual control. <laughs> I think you've made it sound amazing. Yeah. Here's the thing: I, I heard a brilliant thing about um, Nixon in China last night, and it was saying that Chairman Mao. Uh, one of the, the the librettists said that what that is about because Chairman Mao comes out of that opera rather better than people would expect, and they said Chairman Mao is a warning about what happens if you get a philosopher as your king, and that's what I that's what hmm. Jacob Frank is like. You've got somebody who is incredibly charismatic, deeply uh, has deep religious kind of you know he's he's a scholar as well as a kind of a charmer, hmm. and it it really struck me the force that 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 that's yeah, unfortunately, we think that intellectuals would be exactly what we need to run the country, but uh, this is 900 pages that will tell you maybe not. It's not a book you to take on holiday if you, what you want is an entertaining light read. If you want to read and grapple with a great work of art, I'm afraid that's what it is. So it's, it's The Books of Jacob by Olga Togarchuk, uh, translated brilliantly, miraculously, by Jennifer Croft. One of the best translations I think I've read ever. And it will cost you 20 of your English pounds. The book chat will continue on the other side of this message. Don't get carried away. If you think you're going to find drama, world tragedy and embryo and all that, just forget it. What it's about most of the time is education, drainage, foot and mouth disease. Same principles apply. Get down accurately what goes on. Make sure you spell the names right. Super. Ah, uh, it's taken me six years, but finally Roy Kinnear has appeared on. Ah, uh, brilliant. Right. <laughs> That's from the 1974 TV adaptation of South Riding, adapted by Stan Barstow, author of A Kind of Loving mm. and other great Northern texts. And I think most of us have watched this version, mm. haven't we? I watched it because you recommended it to me, yeah. Una, and. Tanya, you've seen it, haven't you? I think, John, you watched it. I did on YouTube, you? yeah. Absolutely loved it. It's really good. 13 hours of VT, but <laughs> but tremendous for all that. 
Yeah, it puts the actors forward, doesn't it? So that uh, and and it does it doesn't yeah. it doesn't cut some of the smaller stories. Uh, so yeah. about the Sordans and the Mitchells, you really you you spend some time with those characters, uh, and a proper proper Miss Sigglesworth. It's so faithful, well, I think. Yeah. So, uh, John, what book are we talking about? Uh, we're talking about South Riding by Winifred Holtby, um, and it was published in 1936. And as we said earlier, she she died five months before it was it was published. Our former guest, Dr. Matthew Sweet, has described it as a depression era middle march. <laughs> and I describe it as a feminist ragged trouser philanthropist. Yeah. <laughs> Both of those things. Both of those things. Yeah. First of all, I love reading the novel, and second of all, I loved learning more about Winifred Holtby, actually, about whom I knew very little. It's, it's um, an astonishing story, isn't it? Amazing. Tanya, when did you... This was... You wanted us to talk about this book. Yeah. When did you first read South Riding? Where were you do? Where were you? What were you doing? So I first heard about it because I... When I was training to be a librarian, one of my fellow uh, trainees was reading it and I asked her about it, what it was about, because I'd never heard of it. And she said, oh, it's, um, it's about a local council. And I thought this was absolutely hilarious because I was a massive book snob having just done an English degree and yeah. and it just kind of laughed and didn't think anything else of it. And then fast forward about five years, I was working at the British Library and I was doing an exhibition about the English or the British landscape in literature. And um, I ended up putting South Riding in it, so I read it for that. And I got absolutely obsessed with it and partly because... My previous great obsession, Middlemarch. I find there's so there are so many similarities between them that I find really fascinating. So they've both got these um, kind of taglines. So South Riding has an English landscape, and Middlemarch has a study of provincial life. So I think those kind of mm. complement each other. They were both yeah, yeah. they both have eight parts. Uh, they're set exactly 100 years apart, so 1832, 1932. Oh, my God. Yeah, that's oh, true. Excellent. Uh, they both had, involve, like, coming of the railway <laughs> to an area slash wow, road. Oh, yes, of course, yeah. Um, and, it, like, huge kind of social change and the also the way that all the characters are so kind of interconnected, so a, a tiny action of one character can have this huge yes. kind of rippling effect in the community. I haven't found anywhere that Winifred Holtby has said, oh, I really love Middlemarch and I want to write a <laughs> version of it for Yorkshire in the 1930s. But I, I can't see how she could have not had it in mind. I think one of the things about this novel is if it had, if you had to sum it up in one line or what, or what Winifred Holtby was trying to say, it is that there is such a thing as society. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, Absolutely. That 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 the the private and personal and political cannot in fact be divided because they they all influence one another and they in turn affect the life prospects of different members of your community and your society. I love your comparison to Middlemarch there. I mean, my comparison to Ragged Trouser Philanthropists is nothing more than it's a load of bolshy propaganda. But uh, <laughs> <laughs> members of the Labour Party might disagree. Una McCormack. Tell people how much you've read to to get ready for this episode. You are amazing. We called you Hurricane Una. Tell us. I, you see, I've had all her books stacked up and I, I've been working through them slowly. I've read 
poor Caroline and Mandoa Mandoa and I read Astonishing Island. I yes, Land of Green Ginger. Yes, I read Land of Green Ginger. I, uh, I, I, I watched both TV adaptations. I watched the film. Me too. <laughs> yeah, I watched Testament of Youth, the 70s one. Oh. I really recommend that. And uh, I read, um, what else did I read? I read, I read. oh, her book about women, uh, Women in a Changing Civilization. Oh, and Testament of Friendship. I had a read Did you read the Virginia well. Woolf book? Uh, I'd read that before. Yeah. And yeah. yet you have nothing to say about Winifred Holtby. I've, got not, I'd, I've hit a dead end. <laughs> what is Winifred Holtby to you? Because well, I remember I'd... you mentioning this to me yeah. years ago, right? Yep, so I when right. Tanya came up with the idea for this episode, <laughs> I thought of you immediately because I could remember you saying, if you ever do Winifred Holtby, you know, I'd love Please to be part of it. I was doing a review of a, a book of uh, it's a, it was a collection of um, articles from the Guardian Women's page, and it was actually a, it was by Kira Cochran. It was recent journalism, but as is my wont, I went off and read around the subject, and uh, I, I found a collection edited by Mary Stott, who'd been editor of that page till 1972, and she was she'd reprint in that collection. She'd collected journalism from the the first half of the Guardian Women's page. And the essays that stood out to me uh, were the ones by Winifred Holtby. And there were two in particular. There was one about the need for a gender-neutral personal pronoun and one about getting kicked out of a hotel uh, after hours because uh, she and her companion didn't have a gentleman friend with them. Uh, and the voice just leapt off the page. It was it was vivid. It was smart. It was contemporary. It was uh, sharp as nails. And from there, I went to, uh, I, you know, most famous of South Riding. I went to, picked up South Riding. Poof, it sort of blew my mind. I think there are two people in the world, two types of people, aren't there? The people who go, oh, my God, it's a book about local government. Yeah. And then there are people who go, oh, a book about local government? My God, it's clearly <laughs> an I, I have been both of those people. <laughs> yeah. If it, was, if it was set in space, it would be like my perfect novel. It would be uh, <laughs> Nigel Neal, Nigel Neal's book of local is, government. There right? is yeah. a science fiction novel by a whole based author concerned with the management of sewage at Slow River by Nicola Griffiths. So there is a kind of uh, she mentions land of green ginger on the first uh, page. So there's a sort of a, uh. so a book that and and exactly what you were saying, Tanya. This this proof uh, or, or using the novel to say. We are connected. If you sneeze there, yeah, you yeah. kill someone there. And yeah, if you yeah. kill someone there, yeah, yeah. you ruin someone's life. And it's it's just brilliant. John, what did you make of this novel or of Winifred Holtby's writing? I um, absolutely loved this novel. I, I'd always... I'd always meant to read it because it was one of my grandmother's favourites when I uh, up on the northeast, and she she more or less instructed me to read um, Testament of Youth and Testament of Friendship at a relatively young age. Um, those were books, that, those were kind of uh, holy books for her. Um, but I'd never read South Riding. I, w I was aware, obviously, in, in 1974, when I was, whatever it was, 12, <laughs> 11, of the TV show because it was watched religiously. It was one. It was that Sunday night, whatever, serial yeah, I remember thinking um, at some point I must I must read it and see if it's as good as it it seems to be. So it was a mass this massive uh, treat really to, to to read it. I mean, I know it's a horrible horrible cliche, but this is not a difficult book to read. I mean, given that I had you know I had 
quite another big fat book to read for this podcast as well. Um, I raced through South Riding, I can tell you. But also, it's it's not just plot, is it? As we'll discuss, yeah, I'm yeah. sure. Uh, I mean, she's. A, I think she's an astonishingly good writer. Lots of unresolved psychological stuff in this novel. I feel that she's, you know, this is a woman who knows she's dying. You feel that, mm. I mean, that was a useful thing to know because there are mm-hmm. a couple of characters in the book who also know yeah. they're dying and she writes about that with such tenderness and, and precision. Yeah, so it's it's uh, marvellous is what I think. For anyone who's who's not uh, read South Riding, who's slightly alarmed by the prospects of a novel about local government, don't worry. Here's the trailer for from the most recent television adaptation of South Riding and, you know, hang on to whatever it is you're sitting in at the moment. I'm not sure you know what you're in for. Coming to the South Riding from London. Actually, I do. I was born here. I thought she was very lively. This is 1934. The future is going to be very different. I mean, she'd stir things up a bit, wouldn't she? But do we want that? I want my girls to know that they can do anything. You're a remarkable woman. You've been disappointed in love during the queue. Bad things happen. Life goes on. Some places can change a person, but sometimes a person can change everything. Some people call this the last town in England, though we don't think so, of course. Welcome to South Riding, coming soon to BBC One and BBC One HD. Did it really wow. have that music? Should get Nikki to play that again, because <laughs> frankly, I couldn't keep up with everything that was happening. <laughs> That's how gripping it is, the sheer yeah. drama. <laughs> Una, we're going to hear various clips through the show of adaptations of South Riding. Why do you think people keep going back to this novel? It was a hit when it was published. Yeah. It's been adapted for film and radio and television repeatedly. What's it got? People are coming back to it to adapt it every every sort of 40 years, aren't they? I, I think it I think it I, I mean it has all these things that John says. It's got this sort of propulsive readability. It's got optimism. It's got uh, a really sharp eye. I mean, she's not she's not sort of um she's not a fool to her politics. She's got a sort of intelligence about what people are like. The reason I think it speaks to us so much at the moment is I feel we are now at the final act of where this book is as a kind of first act. We're talking about a book that's written before the expansion of the welfare state, before the NHS, yeah? And we're kind of just at the end of that now. It's talking about poverty. It's Mm. talking about the bankruptcy of the aristocracy. Uh, It's talking about um, corruption in politics but it's also saying, but but look, this is what we could do. This is what we could build. And and what we see, this book comes out before the war, we see that happen and then we see it collapse. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. that's why I feel it's so contemporary. It, it promises us something. It shows us how to do it. Yeah, promise. I think that's very interesting. The idea that it gives, it still is a promise of unfulfilled. So uh, about autonomy and society, about the individual and the community. Tanya, what do you think? What is it about the, the book that that speaks to people still? I felt like it was so contemporary and I don't know if it was reading it at the moment because there's a, there's a measles epidemic in the book and some of the way that that gets talked about, it, it really just felt like COVID to me. Um like all this kind of same concerns about protecting your family there's um stuff about the role of the state and the size of the state there's stuff about uh, the right of people to access education and birth control and uh, like the women's right to choose and access to healthcare infant mm. mortality 
council tax and the cost of living. I just felt, I feel like exactly like Una says it, it's so now but also of the 30s. And she's insisting, this this thing that you were saying, insisting on our co- connectivity, that, that if we talk about, oh, freedom from COVID, we're, we're deluding ourselves, yeah? We're, we're talking about, uh, you know, the ability of a small number of people to to, to seal themselves off and get their, get their Amazon and Deliveroo delivered. And she she's, this isn't possible. This isn't how these things work. But there's always a, a we have the measles epidemic, but people pass things between that she says we've got a choice you can pass measles or you can pass around songs people are humming songs that they pick up from concerts that they go to so there's a sort of you know look you can you can pass this around yourselves or choose not to or you can spread joy you can spread happiness you can spread uh, uh you can build something positive and not destructive it's a really clever book i just want to read something john talked about how reading the novel knowing that she was so ill when she was writing it, kind of contextualised it in a way. Listeners might want to fast forward by about two minutes because the bit I'm about to read uh, contains some heavy spoilers. So go forward about two minutes. But our friend Peter Fifield, who is at um, Birkbeck, is the author of a book called Modernism and Physical Illness, Sick Books. (laughs) which is terrific, has essays on D.H. Lawrence, Virginia Woolf, T.S. Eliot, Dorothy Richardson and Winifred Holtby. And the chapter on Winifred Holtby is entitled Winifred Holtby and the Fevered Middlebrow. (laughs) I just want to read the beginning of this because I think, John, you'll find this totally captivating. Um, This is what Peter Fifield says about Winifred Holtby and South Riding. He says, Winifred Holtby's premature death from kidney failure is a prominent feature of her authorial image. Suffering from Bright's disease, she died at the age of 37 after an extended period of debilitation. An especially purple review of the posthumous success South Riding tied the author's illness directly to her literary abilities. Quote, we cannot avoid remembering that all the time she was writing it, she must have known that it would be her last. The knowledge has not given it any twist or morbidity but it has given it a sort of passionate richness of love, comprehension and compassion that is like the scent of dark red roses. To a similarly eulogistic end, Vera Britton keenly shaped her friend's image, notably with a memoir of their relationship, Testament and Friendship, published in 1940. This enshrines Holtby as a model of saint-like patience who wrote her masterpiece while enduring sickness with determination, selflessness and good cheer. Britain writes that, quote, in one sense, she welcomed her last illness for the kinship that it gave her with other victims of pain. South Riding itself is well stocked with sickness. This is the spoiler, everybody. Go miss this bit. Seeming to confirm its author's growing preoccupation. Amongst the novel's many afflicted characters, Robert Kahn suffers from angina pectoris. Mrs. Holly dies shortly after childbirth. Gertie Holly dies of a relapse following a mastoid operation. Lily Sorden dies of cancer. Nell Huggins has rheumatism. Mr. Brinsley has died of double pneumonia. And Midge Khan is one of numerous children who catch measles. Oh, and also Mildred Khan is incarcerated because of psychological illness. For Holtby, physical illness is, however, a sustained interest that concludes rather than begins with South Riding and does considered and substantial imaginative work. Now, I thought that was brilliant. Thank you, Peter. John, 
one doesn't read South Riding and feel like it's a litany of passings away. No, there's a sort of positivity that she has in the in her descriptions. I think maybe it's because she's brilliant at doing. Um, although you know, the bit I'm, I'll read later is 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 a is, is a great example of this of, of of the landscape and the sense of the just the cups and sauces and bread and butter and pints of beer, the bits and pieces of people's lives, kind of, you know, the, the comfort that people take, the small comfort. Even you mentioned uh, uh, Lily Sorden, who's who's incredibly unwell through the whole book and martyrs herself by not telling anybody that she's unwell. Um, but even that she manages somehow, there's an amazing sequence where she she's obviously on opium mm. <laughs> and she's kind of just drifting mm. and it's 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 kind of keatsian in the yes. way that she people pass like shadows in a fog she had no contact with them if she spoke she could not remember what she said so i think she uh, there's there's a there's a in the same way that she's politically very balanced you know she she explains why it is you know uh, the, the labor party don't get through to 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 people who work on on farms you know the the Khan's people who can't you know who who are more harsh on on people who they th- think getting benefits than 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 the, 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 the Tory politicians anybody wanted to say give me a, a novel which which enshrines the best of democracy both in terms of her vision as a novelist mm. but also in terms of her vision as you said earlier Andy of society it's south riding but also, it's, it's it's magnificent. Artistic democracy, right, Una? There's yeah, like a. Absolutely. She manages to tread a path between the modernism of Virginia Woolf, which she is tremendously familiar yeah. with, and the kind of boots lending library, middle brow female novel, as as it would have been put. You know, this is this book is deliberately designed to be something of a Trojan horse, right? The idea yeah, is, I think, I think that's is exactly it, right. it takes on the characteristics of the middle brow novel of the era while being full of very subversive things. But it's really interesting that her her mum didn't want it to be published because yeah. the character of Alderman Mrs. Beddoes is based on her mum, Alice Holtby, and Winifred died and Vera Britton was wanted to get the book published and Alice was really against it because she knew it was going to be embarrassing for her because... Uh, Winifred had used real things that had happened in East Riding. Um, and I think Alice Holtby wrote something like, oh, I really wish that I could have made, could have edited it so it would have been more like the story of the 1938 film, which is much more like a middle brow yeah. story, isn't it? Like it's got yeah. a kind of a happy ending. and Yeah. Um, yeah, and it ends with a kind of a, an affirmation of, you know, uh, a Britain together, presumably, you know, on the verge of war. Yes. You know, it's, it ends yes. in harmony. Um, yeah. But it would whereas... have been a much less good book. Oh, yeah. yeah. Evans. Yeah. 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 yeah the, the Jubilee, the Jubilee is, is uh, the Jubilee feels very, very relevant, doesn't yeah. it? The, yeah. The, the yeah, kind yeah. Of the, 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 yes, ambivalent view of, of, Britain together. Yeah. Well, I'm going to read a blurb in a minute, but before, we, as you mentioned, the 1938 film adaptation. So the novel was a big success when it was published, and and as a result of which they made a film quite quickly, quite an important British film of its era. In as much as it was a lot of it was filmed on location, which is very unusual. We've got a clip here. This is you're going to hear Edna Best and Ra- and Ralph Richardson amongst others. Um, this is a scene where our heroine is being interviewed by the local town council for the job of 
headmistress at the local girls' school. Are we ready for Miss Burton? Yes. Sit down, Miss Burton. Mr. Snape? Tell me, are you used to handling a large number of girls? Fairly. How many? About 740. Oh, aye. Mm. Excuse me, Miss Burton. Do you use makeup? Certainly. When it's necessary. Oh, dear. Dear, dear, dear. I don't believe that a schoolmistress should look a frump. I think it sets a bad example to the girls. Very sensible. Why do you want to come here when you've been teaching in London? I wanted to come back to Yorkshire. We had a much better vacancy at Flinton Bridge last year. Why didn't you apply for that? Because I didn't think that I would get it. Why not? Well, you see, I'm not by birth a lady. Well, what do you mean you're not by birth a lady? My father was a blacksmith. Well, what part of the riding do you come from? Lipton Hunter. My mother was the district nurse. Oh, yes, I remember. Go on, say it. My father was a drunkard. He drank himself to death. My mother went to the West Riding and worked herself to the bone to educate me. I'm proud of my mother. If no one else has anything to ask? No, no, nothing. No. <laughs> If you don't want to read this novel now, what's wrong with Come you? Come on, it's brilliant. Know, what's it's wrong crackers. with you? What was what I mean, was really interesting watching all the adaptations back to back is that, as you probably heard, the 2011 one really leans into the romance. And this film yeah. mm. really leans into the local government. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <It's>, uh... <laughs> so what about the subversion of the, you know, what about the subversion of the sort of Heathcliff yeah. yeah. Stereotype in this novel. That's really interesting, right? It so you've is. got Robert Kahn, the landowner. Uh, not Heathcliff so much as who do I mean? Look, Mr. Rochester. Mr. Rochester. It's more a Mr. Rochester thing. Yeah. Rochester and a bit of bit of Heathcliff. A bit. There's the constant expectation of romance. Absolutely. Totally yeah. deferred, right? Completely or not. deferred. What I find so weird about Kahn is that she she. Winifred Holtby describes him four times as looking like Mussolini. Mussolini, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I know, yeah. it leaps off the page, doesn't it? It's on this rabbit hole of, like, Googling yeah. young Mussolini, thinking... Yeah. He keep, she keeps saying, oh, he was very handsome, looks a lot like, like Mussolini. Mussolini. It's like, in what way is Mussolini very handsome? It's like when you see that uh, there's uh, there was a biography of young Stalin... And you would say, well, he was go, very yeah, yeah, yeah. He's a dish. Who's that? Oh, my God. Yeah. Mussolini? No. Yeah. But Khan, you're right. He's set up as this sort of Russian. I mean, there's a there's a scene with him on a horse as well, isn't there? That yeah, yeah. Kind of, yeah, bumps into him on the horse. He's kind of brooding. He's uh, He's got the unhappy first marriage. You're expecting, of course, that the, the first wife will, will do the decent thing and, you know, die in a fire or something. Um, but uh, but that, that doesn't that doesn't happen at all. But Khan, I think he's he, he's sort of set up as the antagonist. You know, he's the gentry, he's the landowner. Yeah. But even then, I think Holtby is saying he's not the villain here. And uh, it's yeah. uh, Sedgemeyer. Yeah, uh, it's yeah. marrying into yeah. the aristocracy that that yeah, drains yeah. him dry. That this vampiric, uh, sort of uh, extremely rich, um, and there's a lovely moment. Isn't there a moment where uh, they're at a poor relief committee or something, and it's it's Khan who has the common touch, and yeah. I, th- I yes. think Astel is sort of envious of it. Khan, um, she seems to me that to be saying that Khan is a man out of time. Yeah, that he he doesn't fit. But that's not to say he's not a human being, and not to say that his values yeah. are um, without merit. The values of 
community, uh, mutuality, reliance on each other. Uh, she, it's just, she it's feudal. For, it's feudal. It's, yeah, he, ca- yeah. he cares for his feudal charges. But she says it can't be real love because you need equality. Tanya, I'm going to ask you to read something in a minute, but first I'm going to read the original jacket copy for South Riding, published by Collins in 1936. Is it 36? Yeah. South Riding by Winifred Holtby. South Riding is unquestionably... John, I'm just going to say to John, listen to this. Would you put this on a jacket, John? South Riding is unquestionably the greatest novel we have been privileged to publish. Wow. <laughs> Collins. Screw the rest of our authors. Yeah. <laughs> this is the one. Completed just before she died, it shows Winifred Holtby at the full height of her remarkable powers and brings home even more forcibly how great a loss current literature has suffered. South Riding is a story of Yorkshire life. It centres around a county council and, as Winifred Holtby herself wrote, quote, the effect of bylaws and resolutions on the lives of people like haulage contractors, corn dealers and small town drapers. It is, it is full of hunting and agricultural shows and relieving officers and drainage schemes yes. and all the things oh. that make up country life. Put it in but, my veins. <laughs> those, those who are already familiar with, quotes the administrative country of York, the local government of which forms an unobtrusive background to the story, know that the South Riding is in fact non-existent that this romantic region has been historically omitted from an area divided into north, east and west. The industrial smoke-blackened west riding of Phyllis Bentley's novels forms no part of Winifred Holtby's English landscape. The north and the east ridings have lent their crashing seas, their sweeping wolds, to give sound and colour to this gracious and compassionate story. Once again, if you're listening to this and you don't want to immediately read South Riding, there is something wrong with you. Something is wrong with you. Didn't she find? Didn't she find that she found all the sort of papers in her m- mother's waste paper yes. baskets of all yeah. the of all the council, council minutes? Her mother had to resign. Kind of her them. grieving mother had to resign from the council. Yeah, the whole story about the um, there's, so there's like a, a kind of a fraud plot. Uh, with buying land to defraud the council from money. Yeah. That was all based on a real story where someone committed suicide. So it's like properly yeah. serious scandal. What I love about Winifred Holtby, I've got to say, actually, funnily enough, is she takes no shit, right? If you read her other work, her journalism and her short stories, actually her voice is remarkably um, flexible in terms of what she can turn her hand to. And the extent to which she's she pursues an idea that she feels is true, um, and that adds to the sense of South Riding as a Trojan horse. I think. I think I learned a lot by reading other things by her about how capable she was of doing all sorts of other things, rather than then turning her hand to quotes unquote a middle brow novel, which requires its own set of skills. But it's a very clear artistic, political, social, commercial philosophical decision tanya i wonder whether could could you read us something to give us a little bit of a sense of how she goes about it yes i'm going to read a bit from 
the epilogue to the book, which is set uh, in the Jubilee of 1935. Uh, and this is Sarah Burton, the headmistress, uh, talking to her pupils. And do we think Sarah Burton, just for people who haven't read the book, we do think Sarah yeah. Burton and author Winifred Holtby have a few things in common, don't we? Yeah, so Sarah Burton's like the the socialist feminist character yeah. in the novel. Who has a very set idea about what, what reform needs to be. She says she's a member of the Labour Party. Um, she's opposed to Khan and that he's kind of all about the feudalistic past and she wants... Uh, a kind of a a new future um and this is what she says to her students don't let me catch any of you at any time loving anything without asking questions question everything even what I'm saying now especially perhaps what I say question everyone in authority and see that you get sensible answers to your questions then if the answers are sensible obey the orders without protest Question your government's policy, question the arms race, question the Kingsport slums and the economies overfeeding school children and the rule that makes women have to renounce their jobs on marriage and why the derelict areas still are derelict. This is a great country and we are proud of it and it means much that is most lovable. But questioning does not mean the end of loving and loving does not mean the abnegation of intelligence. Bow as much love to your country as you like, serve to the death if that is necessary. She was thinking of Joe Astle killing himself by overwork in the Clyde side, dying for his country more surely than thousands of those who today waved flags and cheered for royalty. But I implore you, do not forget to question. Lead on, girls. Yes. So great. Yeah. Lead on, girls. <laughs> like the, the leaving school speech you all want. Um, <laughs> Miss Jean Brodie, also a great fan of Mussolini, lest we forget. <laughs> yes, I was going to say that the, the, the Mussolini thing was was big in those in the thirties before it all went wrong. <laughs> I would like to ask Una and John. There's also a kind of brilliant social survey element to this novel, which I do not think was very common in the 1930s. Certainly not with the compassion and democratic approach that Winifred Holtby shows. I think she con she conceived of the book as a social comedy. I think that's that's what she had in it. That's what I fear. When you, I'm I'm, I'm struck by when you read the brilliant little chapter headings. You know, Midge enjoys the measles. Uh, the Hubbard's only object is philanthropy. Uh, Mrs. Beddoes has three men to think of. Barney Holly um, blows out a candle. Yeah. Yes, yeah. Nat Brimsley does not like, like rabbit, rabbit pie. pie. <laughs> yeah. I think what you've got really is 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 you know she's she's she wants she wants to write a comedy, but she's writing a comedy as she's dying, and I think that kind of sense of wanting the book to have a, a deeper resonance, you can feel her allowing the characters to to to, to move. But having said that, when she does do comedy. Um, she does do it very well. And there is a brilliant scene where um, the widow, Mrs. Brimsley, the widow, and the somewhat feckless Mr. Holly, whose wife has died in childbirth or shortly after childbirth. And he has, is it seven children? A lot of children. And But he is a charmer and he's got amazing, sing a beautiful tenor mm. singing voice. 
And it's one of the more amusing seduction scenes in in, in literature, I think, when they're they're thrown together. <laughs> they're thrown together in uh, in the bus. I'll just read a little bit of it. Anyway, you're the salt of the earth, and don't I know it? He sighed. That sheltering impersonal arm round her waist tightened. A fat lot of use to me, that is, stuck away in Cold Harbour with one son that wouldn't know spring chicken from a black pudding and another that knows all right but would rather have cocoa and jam and peg pudsy than bone turkey and bacon cakes and his poor old mother. As for Bill Hyer, he's as nice a chap as you could wish, but he's not human. There's something about a bachelor as neat in the house as he is that isn't natural, I say. He might as well have been a girl. That's right. It's not natural. Though maybe if he had two arms instead of one, they'd be tickling to get round you. With ladylike oblivion. Mrs Brimsley ignored altogether the arm which was already around her waist, so preoccupied with the two on their front seat that they did not notice how the bus moved now more quickly, now slowly, at foot pace in the enveloping fog. They had even forgotten there was a fog at all, when a violent jolt suddenly threw Mrs Brimsley right into her escort's arms, and him onto his knees beneath her, gallantly shielding her from further shock. <laughs> two children screamed, the setter yelped, a basket of live chickens flew from the rack and landed on an old gentleman's bowler hat. The conductor called, oops a daisy keep on smiling, keep on shining. But the left four-wheel of the south-riding motor services bus was in a ditch. Oh, God! Oh, God! Gasped Mrs. Brimsley. That's all right, that's all right, muttered Mr. Holly, his mouth full of her hair, <laughs> for her hat had fallen off, and she lay draped across his head and shoulders in an attitude not unlike that known as the fireman's lift. She had lost her fur, she'd lost her paper carrier of tomatoes, tea, heather mixture, knitting yam, and zambok. She had lost her nerve completely. But Mr. Holly's arms were round her, and Mr. Holly's chest, as he struggled up and levered her back onto the now sloping seat, seemed a pleasant and comfortable place on which to have hysterics. So Mrs. Brimsley, an energetic woman, with courage enough to face life's real crises without faltering, abandoned herself to the luxury of this lesser occasion and laughed and cried in unashamed abandon. Oh, it's oh, brilliant. very good. Rhythm, though. Rhythm. Yeah. Right? Like all comic writing. Listen to the rhythm of that. Bang, 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 bang. I, I, I'll go into spoilers here because I do I do want to talk a little bit about Barney Holly, who I think is, is the sort of... If there is a villain in this book, it's probably him. He, he just goes through this book with the kind of casual abandon of a of yeah. a which in a posher man would be Boris Johnson yeah he just uh, <laughs> lives without consequence he is quite literally shameless yeah, yeah. he lives without consequence and then I, I think it, it's 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 not even the death of his wife and the fact that this consigns his eldest daughter who's who's a clever girl consigns yeah. her to a life of drudgery uh sort of gets him to pull these bloody finger out it's um it's the death of the little girl isn't it and the way he sort of sorts out his mess is by seducing jesse brimsley on the bus <laughs> he's um, sort of he, he's a brilliant ex, he's, he's a brilliant incredible. example of a, a man who thinks he's a lo, who thinks he's a lovable rogue who she presents yeah, as an unlovable he's a, one he's a really rogue. really good and the other the other brilliant thing about this scene is um it it's it's immediately juxtaposed with a scene between Khan and Burton Sarah Burton in the Manchester hotel which is a disastrous encounter between potential Spoilers. lovers Spoilers. Spoilers. oh do, <laughs> yeah <laughs> doesn't make any difference read the book anyway <laughs> i was going to say the other thing about uh, holly the the thing I find really depressing is that basically his wife dies in childbirth because mm. Lydia, their daughter, makes them a cup of tea. Yeah. 
and yeah. that like revives him enough to want to have sex with his wife who's not supposed yep. to have yes. any more children <laughs> and so and the, and the mum tells Lydia it's like That's you shouldn't have made awful. us that cup of tea if you're, yeah. you don't made that cup of tea Lydia you could have taken up that scholarship my god yeah, yeah. The other utterly ruthless character I think we have to mention is uh, is Midge Midge Khan, who I find quite oh. uh, really really cold actually. Oh, that, she's horrible. Yeah, that scene horrible. at the end where she just uh, so there's a there's an article in Harper's from 1941 called "Who Goes Nazi," and you look at Midge <laughs> Khan and you think, my God, you're gonna. Be- <laughs> You're the Unity Mitford of this book, aren't you? Oh, oh God, brilliant. she is. <laughs> brilliant. Well, let, let's hear another little bit from an adaptation. This is from an American radio adaptation from 1948. And what you're going to hear is Hester Sondergaard as Sarah Burton, who has just helped Robert Kahn deliver a calf in the middle of the night. Oh, great scene. And uh, they've repaired to um, his house to talk through the night they've had and you're going to hear Robert Kahn here played by none other than Charles Lawton you know this room is beautiful aye it has dignity in the half light of the fire and the candle flame it's not so pretty but day this big house is crumbling to pieces over my head that uh, that portrait over the mantel her eyes she was the loveliest woman I have ever known. I loved her from our first meeting, her beauty and her courage and her laughter, you know, but I never really understood her. She was always a stranger to me. She was like some wild thing, reckless and enchanted. She roared like the wind and danced and went her own way, but first it was travel. Biarritz, Monte Carlo, Baden, Baden, Vienna. We lived extravagantly, hunting all winter, fishing sometimes in Norway. I could afford it those days, and I was happy. But when Midge was born, all that changed. Muriel lost her balance. Poor beauty. And since then, she's been uh, shut away. I blame myself she didn't want the child. Oh, how terrible. Perhaps she never even loved me. I don't know. I shall never know. But I loved her, and that was enough. Since then, I've mortgaged Maythorpe, stinted my daughter's education, drained the farm to the last penny, let the house go to rack and ruin to see that she has every luxury of treatment and comfort that money can buy. Oh, she, uh, she isn't beautiful now. After 14 years. I won't fail her, though, if I have to sacrifice everything. Oh, man. Wow. <laughs> Scene is completely out of character for him as well. He yeah, would never say yeah, all of that. Just <laughs> suddenly emoting there in front of a portrait. Out of the yeah. cow. Right, so it's an adaptation that condenses the 500-page yeah. South Riding to one hour of drama. Yeah. Old hour. <laughs> Not 13 hours like Yorkshire TV or three hours like the BBC, but a, a, a whole hour is devoted to it. I wonder, could we talk a little bit about some of uh, Winifred Holtby's other work before we we have to to wind up? Um, Una, is there a typical Winifred Holtby book? Uh, oh, that's a really interesting question. No, I I I I mean, it would be South Riding, but only because I think in South Riding, it's it, 
uh, that's the book where she she's at the top of her game, I think. It was funny, there was something on Twitter the other day about has anyone written their masterpiece before the age of 35? And I think you do see kind of... Uh, uh, you do see run-ups for this. So there's a there's a great comic novel called Poor Caroline, uh, which is about uh, a woman trying to clean up the British film industry and a bunch of crooks and swindlers sort of circulate around her and try to get her money out of her and that sort of thing. Mandoa Mandoa is a, another comedy about colonialism. It's, it's very like Black, Black Mischief. I think they're published more or less at the same time, but it's not cynical. I've only read two of her other novels. I've read Land of Green Ginger and The Crowded Street. And I just felt like they were, like you could see hints of South Riding, but they were very different in that I feel like they are much more like traditional middle brow, this kind of melodramatic aspects. There's like a little kind of Mary Webb type mm. style element in there. Um, and you, there's no melodrama in South Riding. It, it's It's just, so beautiful and unsentimental and well observed. I think this is the book where the journalism and the novels come together. I think it's typical to kind of think of Holtby as maybe, uh, you know, she's pulled one way by the journalism, she's pulled one way by the novels, but I, I don't think that's the, the way to think about it. These were always powering what she did. The journalism is sharp, has the eye for, you know, that detail that will feed into a scene like that comedy on the bus. Uh, her ability to juxtapose scenes in the way that we talked about. You just wonder what she would have done next. What would have been the book after South Riding, I think? Because she all that apprenticeship just turned out this masterpiece. It's incredibly inspirational in that even though... Um, so Astor, who's the kind of the big socialist character, um, doesn't kind of achieve what he wants to achieve in South Riding or just in life. But he writes to Sarah and says, I I think um, even if there's another war and what you've built up doesn't come to fruition, you've still done really good work. And that really, I'm going back to Middlemarch again. So the, la the last line of Middlemarch is like my self-help book, <laughs> um, which is basically saying the world is, the world gets better because people are doing small good things that are within their remits and it won't be remembered but it makes everything better for all of us and I just think that's it's so it's so great <laughs> yes indeed well listen before we wind up last week I read Winifred Holtby's book The Astonishing Island which no one had borrowed from the library for 30 years <laughs> it's never been republished and Una McCormack you read this as well didn't I did. you? I've got my own copy now but I, I booked a special trip to Newnham College Library to read the copy I sat there in uh, the library there and read it and uh it's my extra deep dive into Winifred Holby. I thought, I'm going to do so this. <laughs> I'd just like to read this one bit from near the beginning. This is a satirical novel in the kind of tradition of H.G. Wells. And regular listeners will, will hear me rolling my eyes as I say this. Patrick Hamilton's Impromptu in Moribundia, uh, where you wouldn't expect this author to write this kind of book. But it's really funny, isn't it, Una? It's genuinely funny. Some proper laughs in this. And... In terms of, so the idea is it's about a man called Robinson Lippingtree Mackintosh in the tradition of uh, Robinson Crusoe and Gulliver, who lands on an astonishing island, which may well be uh, the United Kingdom. He's washed up on a beach, and this is what he finds. 
Those not occupied with papers in some form were supervising the labour of young children who were employed at digging trenches and mounds and irrigating the sand, etc. And I thought at first that these people must be mad to employ child labour to till the land where no crops grow. But I learned afterwards that it is the nature of the islanders to mimic labour for pleasure, as I shall presently explain. Directly I struggled to the shore, being almost exhausted. A man laid his hand upon me and led me into a large building where I thought he would offer me food and shelter, so went gladly. But he shouted, islanders to the right, foreigners to the left, have you anything to declare? Any perfume, cigarettes, matches, artificial silk, optical instruments, tomatoes, motor cars, imported grapes, or copies of The Well of Loneliness? (laughs) (laughs) And I said no. I said no. I had nothing but my trousers, which were wet through having used my shirt as a sail. And he said, you can't sunbathe here. And I said, I see I can't. There's no sun. And I explained that I was shipwrecked. And I told him that I was not the only shipwrecked wretch landed from the storm, for I had seen five or six unhappy women, one with a small child and one of venerable appearance, who crawled half naked and blew with cold from the waves just after me. Yet not one islander went to help them or show compassion for their terrible plight. And when I pointed out to the man who had so strangely questioned me about motor cars and imported grapes, he said, Help them? Oh no, we can't interfere with the ladies nowadays. Not that I approve of mixed bathing myself. And indeed, I soon learned that this was no accident, but that the women had removed their warm clothes and entered of their own free will into the water, cutting their feet upon the shingle and suffering agonies from cold and misery in order to give themselves pleasure. And yes, ladies and gentlemen, that is Winifred Holtby on the topic of wild swimming there, Nikki. So... So still satirical and still valid uh, and not totally not in print, The Astonishing yeah. Island, but I really, really enjoyed yeah. that. And now we must leave the sea cliffs and the rolling farmland of the South Riding behind us and offer huge thanks to Tanya and to Una for allowing us to roam freely across this wonderful novel, to Nikki Birch for braiding a single story out of our four voices <laughs> and to Unbound for all the bacon cake. You can, you can download all 157 <laughs> previous episodes of Batlisted, many of which feature Una McCormack. <laughs> Plus follow links, clips and suggestions for further reading by visiting our website at batlisted.fm. And we're always pleased if you contact us on Twitter and Facebook and now in Sound and Pictures on Instagram too. You can also show your love directly by supporting our Patreon at patreon.com forward slash backlisted. We aim to survive without paid-for advertising. Your generosity helps us to do that. All patrons get to hear backlisted episodes early. And for more, little more than the price of a round of bass in the nag's head, lock listeners get two extra lock listeds a month. Our own cosy staff room where we three sit drawing up lesson plans for listeners and assigning marks to the things we've seen, heard and read in the previous fortnight. Lot listeners also get to hear their names read out on the show as a mark of our thanks and appreciation. And this week's batch roll call is Pat Carey, thank you very much. Paul Navarez, thank you. Ali H, thank you. Fergal Kinney, thank you very much. Sladjana Ivanis, thank you. Ken Samuels, thank you very much. And thanks to Ginny Anderson, to Edwina Lana, to Joe Carter, to Hannah James to Patricia Amort and to Mike Allen. We're also delighted to welcome Fleur Ashworth and Sarah Chapman to our Guild of Master Storytellers, the highest tier 
in the backlisted firmament. Hey, listeners, if you're in London on May the 9th this year, 2022, you can come and see me and my band Shabby Road at the 100 Club raising money for the National Literacy Trust by playing songs from the Blue album by the Beatles, sort of 67 to 1969 and 70. We've been rehearsing really hard <laughs> and we can almost play them without looking at the music now. So, if, so, so given that the Beatles no longer exist, Shabby Road does exist and you can get tickets for the gig at wegottickets.com forward slash event forward slash 537443. All the money we make will go to the National Literacy Trust. And last time we managed to raise £10,000 and we're hoping to do better than that this time. So uh, come along. It's charity. Let's be honest. It's a false flag operation, the charity, to allow me to tit about on stage singing Beatles songs. <laughs> but nevertheless, more children will learn to read as a result of us doing it. So support it. Win-win. Got to be. As we've said repeatedly in this episode, you know, there are two types of people in this world. People who want to read South Riding and Fools. That's why. <laughs> <laughs> so we hope you enjoy it because nobody who listens to this would fall into the latter category. Right, Johnny? Yes, completely right. <laughs> in, the, in the words of Sarah Burton, if the law is oppressive, we must change the law. If tradition is obstructive, yeah. we must break tradition. If the system is unjust, we must reform the system. Take what you want, says God. Take it and pay for it. Thanks, Tanya. Thanks, Una. This has been brilliant. Thank you. See you. Bye-bye. I took a good look at myself, realised that I was 39 years old, but I'm not going to stagnate up there. No fear. There'll be far too much to do. I'm a fighter and I love teaching. I don't think you've ever understood just how much. I think I'm born to be a spinster. And if that's the case, then by God, I'm going to spin. If you prefer to listen to Backlisted without adverts, you can sign up to our Patreon. It's www.patreon.com forward slash backlisted. As well as getting the show early... You get a whole two extra episodes of what we call Locklisted, which is Andy, me and Nikki talking about the books, music and films we've enjoyed in the previous fortnight.